0: Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were oppressed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Do you know how many cornfields we have in this country alone? 90 million acres of corn in the United States. Which annually produces 13 billion bushels of corn every year. Year. Can you fathom that number? I mean, I can't. I can know that that's a fact. I can know that there are 90 million acres of cornfields. I can know that we generate 13 billion bushels of corn, but I cannot wrap my head around either of those numbers. They are just too big for me. I can't, I try to picture how many trucks would it even take to get 13 billion bushels of corn to the factories. To the feedlots, how many grocery stores in this country does it take to sell that many bushels of corn products? And I cannot wrap my mind around that number. The harvest is absolutely great. It's greater than anything we can fathom. And the problem is, when we get in those situations as human beings, we get overwhelmed. When we, we get a number that's just so huge, it literally boggles the mind uh, that o- we just get that overwhelmed sensation. And, and, and two things happen to us when we get overwhelmed. And the first thing can be explained by talking about jam, as long as we're on the subject of fruits and grains. When was the last time you looked at the jelly aisle at your local grocery store? How many varieties of jam is it possible for there to be? It's fathomless. And in fact, studies have shown when it comes to jam, they they did an experiment and the grocery store set out 24 varieties of jam on one day. And then the next day, they only set out six varieties of jam. And they alternated back and forth for a few days. And then looked at the numbers and saw how much jam the shoppers in that store bought on those different days. And so what do you think? Which day did the customers buy more jam? When they had more choices, 24 choices, or when they had six choices? Six. Because apparently what happens is when you are a shopper and you see 24 varieties of jam, you say, I just can't even deal with that today. And you go right to the peanut butter. Because choosy moms, choose GIF, and then, I mean, it's made, the choice is already made for you. When we get overwhelmed, we actually shut down. Mentally, physiologically, our brain just says, I just cannot even deal with that. And you don't even make a decision. You don't even buy any jam. It's the first thing that happens when we get overwhelmed. The second thing that happens when we get overwhelmed is our brain frantically tries to find a way to cope with the overwhelmed sensation. It's kind of like in printing. If any of you know printing, that on the screen is a picture of a stereotype. I don't know if you knew that, that stereotype is a printing term originally. And a stereotype was used because the way printing used to work, if you wanted to print a page of a newspaper or a book, you'd have to take a little metal piece with an A and a C and an R and and all the letters, and you have to put them all together and spell out your words, and then put those all together to make your sentences and fill out your page. Uh, And then you would put those into your printing press and you'd press the paper on top of it. And every time you had to do a page, you had to get all those little letters and and piece them back together. But if there was a page that you knew that you were going to have to print again, that you knew it wasn't just this one time, but there'd maybe be a reprint or or it's a newspaper and you have to print a bunch of them. uh, If you knew you were going to print the page again, what you would do is you would make a stereotype of that page. So that the next time you had to print it, you didn't have to spend all the time sorting and arranging and getting all the letters back where they were supposed to be. You could grab the stereotype, just print that, and move right on. A stereotype was a time-saving device to help us when we get overwhelmed with the number of things we have to deal with. A stereotype helps us to reduce that and make the energy manageable. And so you can see how that word came to mean what we mean today. Because when we see large groups of people, when we get overwhelmed by information, uh, our brain has come up with a stereotype to just go, oh, I've already figured out what that situation entails. And your brain can just make the judgment and move on. And that is not inherently a bad thing. That's the way our brains work. Uh, if every day you had to recognize your spouse all over again and your brain had to go, oh, wait, she looks about five, six and brown hair, uh, yep, I think that's my wife. As opposed to your brain just knowing, nope, I know who that is. It, it, it's actually a natural part of how we are. But those are the two things that we do when we are overwhelmed. We shut down or we come up with a stereotype to enable our brain to sift through greater data and ignore uh, things that might be more complicated than we can handle. And so here's what's amazing to me, is that Jesus went through all the towns and villages of Galilee. Estimates put the number of people at half a million in that region at that time. And he went to every town, every village, taught in all of their synagogues, healed anyone that was sick. And I can guarantee you that 2,000 years ago, there were lots of remedies that weren't getting cured in hospitals. And what's amazing to me is he didn't do either of those two things that we've just talked about. One man with no modern transportation on foot, taking months and months to visit a region of half a million people. And when he saw the crowds, he wasn't overwhelmed and shut down. He didn't stereotype and dismiss with group judgments. He felt compassion. When he saw the amazing numbers of people that needed help, he didn't ignore it, he didn't dismiss it, he felt compassion because they were oppressed, confused, hurting, and helpless. And I gotta tell you, that's frustrating for me personally because compassion is not my knee-jerk reaction to things. I don't start there. Certainly not with a crowd of people, and especially not even just with a one-on-one situation. And I have one story that just brought that uh, very much to the front of my mind uh, recently, that there was a a, a mom that my wife met a few years ago. Met her at the park, kids were the same age as ours, and they got to talking, and and, and we kind of made a casual friendship. And she was a very uh, fun and uh, vivacious and interesting uh, lady, but she just made terrible choices. And it was hard for me to hang out with her because she'd come over and she'd just tell us stuff that she did or choices that she would made, and I'm just in my head going, oh, oh, lady. She brought her husband over, and he was bad news. She grew up uh, in a bad parents and, and, and basically got out of her family situation as soon as she could out of high school, married this guy because he was an escape. And, and, and we met him, and we just, oh, this is not a good guy. And we, could, we could just tell. And, uh, and and, and we try and be gentle, and we try to reach out to him, too, but, but he just, he wasn't having it. He didn't want anything to do with us. And uh, and But my wife and she, they kept up the, the, the friendship, and, and every time I heard more stories, I just went, oh, honey, the, these choices. And it was so frustrating and sad. And when we moved here about six months ago now, we, we just kind of dropped off communication. My wife didn't really see her much uh, or, or engage with her much. Uh, and then about two weeks ago, we saw on Facebook that she was getting divorced. And you know what my first thought was, right? Saw that coming, could have told you that was going to happen anytime. time. Do you know what my wife's first reaction was? I got a caller and she called her right there and it was bedtime and that was annoying to me because she was then on the phone with her for an extra two hours that night. And she's been on the phone with that friend, and this is a pretty accurate estimate, probably about 20 hours total just in the last two weeks since we saw uh, that Facebook post. And she's just listened. And she's let her vent and pour out because this poor woman, uh, it turned everything we'd suspected about her husband was true. Serial cheater. In fact, was cheating with this woman's best friend. And so in one swoop, lost her husband, lost the woman she thought she could trust. And now suddenly my wife, who's 800 miles away, is the only person she can even talk to. And and for 20 hours the last two weeks, I've been really frustrated. Because I don't get to see my wife very often either. I'm working, I'm in school, uh, and, and when I get home, I'm excited to see my wife. And she's like, hang on, I'm on the phone with her again. And I put on my Christian face and I say, okay, that's good. And I'm seething. And then a couple of nights ago, I'm hearing the conversation because, again, I want to go to bed. And so my wife and I are in bed together, and she's just on the phone with this friend. And so I'm hearing the conversation. And the friend is telling these things, and I'm just, and I'm just going crazy in my own head because so with the divorce, she can't afford her big SUV anymore, so she's selling the SUV. And, and so here's what she did. We lived in Colorado Springs, but her hu- ex-husband now works in Denver, and you can get better prices for cars in Denver. So she drove herself and her two little girls up to Denver without telling anybody, sold her car to just some guy from Craigslist had six thousand dollars in cash. Calls her ex-husband at that point and says, "Hey, I'm up here in Denver without a car and the two kids. Can we come crash your work?" And I'm like, "This is not a good guy. You don't want to do that." And so. He lets her, and then she's like, well, now i got to find a new car. And so she's calling people, and she's telling my wife this story. And and, and I'm just like, I'm anxious. I want to go to bed. I want to relax and have a peaceful night's sleep. And and as I hear this story, like the hackles on my neck are just going, why would you do this? And then, you know, she says, so she found a guy that was willing to sell her a car, but he lived in like a sketchy part of Denver. So she asked the ex-husband to watch the two girls, and she took a cab out to sketchy Denver with $6,000 in cash in her pocket. Went to this bad neighborhood, and she gets there, and the guy is sketchy as all get out the car looks like it had been burned on the inside and she gets it and she says i am not buying this car and, and so she, un, under the pretense of, of, of taking another look at it she pulls out her cell phone and uh, and calls a cab service and says can you please send a cab as soon as possible and they say well at 45 minutes is the soonest We can get there and she says okay please hurry and then her phone dies because she never charges her phone and 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 my blood pressure is just shooting through the roof and it's just so i go back to the guy and i have to pretend i'm gonna buy his car because i have to kill 45 minutes and and he says well as as long as you're thinking about it you know want to want to light something up with me because this is colorado and the friendly thing to do in colorado now is to offer people your weed and so she's got this guy wanting to, to smoke weed with her and she's waiting for this taxi and she's just saying i and she's got all this money in her pocket and i just go terrible choices Why do you do this to yourself? But then at the end of the call, she says to my wife, I've known Christians my whole life. And Mia, you are the first person I've ever met that actually made me think Jesus was someone who might care about me because you're the first one I've met that I think actually cares about me. And in that moment, my heart broke. Because it weren't my choice, we probably wouldn't be friends with her much longer. Because she's just so hard to know. She makes these choices that drive me crazy. And yet my wife was willing to put the time and put in 20 hours on the phone and ignore her patient, long-suffering husband who deserves better than that. And look what the fruit was. And now she's going to come out. She's going to come out and stay with us. The the ex-husband gets the kids for a while and she's actually going to drive out here and just spend some time with us because she has no friends anymore. She has no relationships anymore. And and so she's going to come out and I think it's actually going to be a really good time. But I can't even with one person that God's placed in our path have compassion be my first response. I told you so was my first response. And if I can't do it with one person, How much more in awe should I stand of this God? Of Jesus who when confronted with half a million is still able to say that compassion is his first reaction. Or when the psalmist, when when he's writing poetry to God and when he's actually trying to have perspective about this God and he says, Lord, when I look up into the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, What are mere mortals that you think about us? Human beings that you care for us? Because if we put it in the perspective of creation, we think 90 million acres of corn is a lot. How about the trillions of stars in the universe? And yet with all of this harvest, God still says, I feel compassion for you. He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't blow us off. He doesn't shut down because he's overwhelmed or stereotype. Instead, as the psalmist also says, just as a father is compassionate for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. He knows how weak we are. He he remembers that we are but dust. And instead of saying, you're dust, there's too many of you and you all make terrible choices. He feels compassion for us. When God sees a mass of faces, he doesn't shut down, he doesn't stereotype, instead he zooms in on that crowd and he sees each and every individual face and he has compassion. And can we who have known that compassion firsthand, can we who are children, of a father who made the universe and everything in it and still cares for us, can we do any less? And yet, I know that I do less every day as recently as these last two weeks. And I know that I, when I'm confronted by crowds, find it easier to either shut down and ignore or stereotype and ignore than to look at the crowds the way God looked at the crowds and to feel the same compassion that he does when the Syrian refugee debate came up a few months ago. And the tenor of the debate was basically between, no, we can't let terrorists in here, uh, and, and that's the, the knee-jerk response, and everyone else calling people, jer- and, and, just, and just the name-calling and, and, and the mudslinging. and saying, no, there's millions of them, and we don't know who might be included in those groups. We don't know who might try to sneak in to our country if we let them in. And, and I'm not trying to talk about the policy here, or the specific choices that that governors or politicians might make, but that I would wish the debate could have had a different starting point. That the starting point could have been, of course we will have compassion on Syrian refugees. And yes, there are some logistics that must be figured out, yes, there's some, some things that we have to be realistic. And maybe if we didn't look at it as a crowd of millions, but maybe if we zoomed in on one, and this is the picture that changed my thinking on Syrian refugees ever since, when you look at a father who sold his house, sold his car for pennies on the dollar so that he could give everything he owned to some man who would say, all right, here's an inner tube that you can take across a sea, and if you don't drown, you can land on another shore, and you will be penniless, and you will be homeless, and he does it anyway, because that's how he's going to save his family. And can I feel compassion for that man, even if the idea of millions of refugees overwhelms me or makes me shut down? Can I identify with a father's struggle to do whatever he can for his children? We're more close to home domestically in this country. We have 100 million people on welfare in this country alone. Of one form of federal assistance or another. And again, I'm not talking about the policy of it. There might be better ways to take care of those hundred million. There might be worse ways. There might be different choices we have to make. But I know how easy it is for me to just say, oh, just that welfare group and to just ignore or stereotype. Where maybe if I focused on an individual and instead saw a working mom who has to work two part-time jobs because one of them doesn't pay enough. And because they're both part-time, she doesn't have health care benefits for her family. And so on top of not making a very good wage and having to work more hours, she still is also having to pay $1,000 a month just to provide health care for the family. And she hopes and prays that she has a relative who is unemployed because at least that's someone who can watch the kids while she puts in 80 hours of work that week. Can I feel compassion for her even if I can't feel it for the group? Or another thing that's splitting our country down the middle, that we look at uh, the group of people that are supportive of homosexual marriage. And they think that gay marriage uh, is a thing. And, and we look at them and we say they're, they're trying to undermine what marriage is. They're undermining God's word. They're changing morality. Uh, and, and they're ruining something that God has made that is holy and beautiful. And it's not necessarily wrong to think that. But could we instead say, that's my neighbor. And she is looking for love and affection just like I am. And do I think that she's looking for it in a way that is not going to bless and help her? Yeah. Do I think that she's looking for it in a way that God has told us is not the way he designed us? I do. But can I at least identify with her need? And that she's just trying to feel loved and understood just like I am. And can I feel compassion for her because she's confused and helpless and not see her as a threat But see her as someone who needs compassion just as much or more than anyone. When we look at these faces, can we see them the way God sees them? Can we ourselves look at them individually and see those stories? Or can we maybe even zoom out instead and see the face of Christ who in his own, when he was in heaven, from the dawn of time, saw compassion on the dust of his people. When he was incarnate and actually came to earth as a human, he still felt that same compassion. And when he is waiting for his second coming and he said to us, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Can we see Christ's face in those crowds? Can we feel the same compassion that he felt? Can we look at the grains of the harvest and not be overwhelmed, not shut down? but feel compassion for each and every kernel that is harvested. 13 billion bushels of corn every year, but there are 7.4 billion people on this earth. And again, that's a number I can't fathom, but maybe I can break it down in this one way. That out of that 7.4 billion, there are 2.2 billion Christians. And I don't think that the problem is that there are not enough Christians. When we pray to God to send more workers for the harvest, I don't think we're saying that we need more numbers. I think what we're truly praying for is that the numbers that are already there would feel that compassion as Christ felt it for the crowds. And so to break these two numbers that are far bigger than I can fathom down, 7.4 billion people, 2.2 billion Christians, but you know what that works out to? If each Christian could find three people that are helpless, oppressed, confused, lost. Looking for something, whether it's physical help, spiritual help, knowing that there is a God who made the universe, who does not think of them as dust, but as his own beloved children. But if we of the 2.2 billion could find three to love with compassion, what a difference we'd see in this world. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, as we approach your word and see the example of your compassion, not just on people that needed healing from sickness and disease, but on each and every person in your broken creation. Lord, give us your eyes to see. Break our hearts for the same things that break yours. Be thou our vision to approach those around us with compassion. Amen.